listening to the Bible 126 show. Well, let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Father, we again thank you for your word. We pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit, you just open it to our lives, that in all these things that we might behold what you have put here for us as we commit ourselves in this time into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Deuteronomy, session 8. We're taking chapters 17 and 18. We're going to talk a little bit, about four verses, on the purity of worship. Then we're going to talk a little bit about what we might call the rules of evidence, or really maybe you know, what the qualifications for a witness or establish a thing before a court is. And then we have some verses that may surprise you. Verses about the king. Most of us think, gee, the king, that came when Saul and Samuel, and that, that's, you know, later. It's interesting that Moses anticipates that there will be a king in Israel. And we'll talk about that when we get there. But these are the three topics in Deuteronomy 17. So, Deuteronomy 17, verse 1. Thou shalt not sacrifice. And by the way, this is really, uh, the chapter breaks sort of unfortunate because this really is a continuation of the last few verses of, of chapter uh, 16 about the judges and, how the, and the priests. And the anyway, ver, uh, verse 1. Thou shalt not sacrifice unto the Lord thy God any bullock sheep wherein is blemish or any evil favoredness, for that is an abomination unto the Lord thy God. You say, well, gee, wait a minute. Isn't that, isn't that blemish something God ordained? Well, those things will happen randomly. God's t- it's, a, it's a test of how serious you feel about God. If you're going to offer God something, you ought to make sure it's perfect. It should be your best, not your worst. It shouldn't be the stuff you're writing off for tax reasons. It should be something that really will please the Lord. That's what it's all about. To, do, to, to, to consciously or deliberately provide some blemished goods as an offering was considered an insult to the God of the universe. Again, God is establishing the incredible gulf that exists between a holy God and uh, people, even at their best, whatever that might be. It's still an abomination. The, 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 uh, there's, a, there's a gap that God is dealing with here. So uh, anything that's sacrificed or sanctified before the Lord should be perfect. If there be found among you within any of thy gates, which the Lord thy God giveth thee, Man or woman that hath wrought wickedness in the sight of the Lord, uh, thy God, in transgressing transgressing his covenant, and hath gone and served other gods and worshipped them, either the sun or moon or any of the host of heaven, which I have not commanded, and it be told thee, and thou hast heard of it, and inquired diligently, and behold, it be true, and the thing certain, that such abomination is wrought in Israel, Let's pause. We'll see what happens then. But I don't want to skim over this too quickly here. Someone that served other gods. You say, well, gee, that sounds pagan. That sounds old-fashioned. Uh, ancient times. No, it's going on today. A few weeks ago was the high pagan day of the year. Summer solstice. 40,000 witches and others gathered around Stonehenge in Britain, covered by the press. The head of one of the major witches' organizations in Britain, which boasts 100,000 members in Britain, is rejoicing that recruiting is up thanks to Harry Potter stories and movies. A lot of, a lot of Christians point out that that's pretty evil stuff, and other people say, oh, you're overreacting. It's just good children's stuff. And, uh, well, that's interesting. Um, the, the, the uh, stories are obviously very skillfully crafted and they're quite colorful and, and you can see how it would appeal to kids. But the tragedy is that it has aspects to it that serve the purpose of uh, the dark side. And that's not my opinion. That's the dark side's opinion as expressed in the press. So you want to be alert to that. And uh, I think there are many other influences that are far more sinister than the ones that are obviously pagan. The more subtle ones are the more dangerous ones. But in any case, and worship them, either the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven. Worshiping the host of heaven. You say, gee, we don't worship the host of heaven. Not like the ancients did. There's a whole thing about that. That you, you, If you want to get into that, I encourage you to get our, we have a little briefing package on Halloween. 
and talks a little bit about the moons of Mars and a lot of other things that may surprise you if you haven't done some background in this area. Why is Halloween on the 31st of October, etc.? Well, there's some reasons for that. So uh, uh, anyway, if you find someone that's doing that in Israel, I want you to notice what we're going to do here. First of all, we're going to make everybody be told it and has heard of it and inquired diligently. We're not talking hearsay now. It's funny, in Christians, we seem to do one of two things. We either ignore it, shine it on as harmless, or we just indulge in hearsay without corroboration. We seem to err on both extremes, where we do nothing on the one hand or we overreact on hearsay on the other. The Scripture is saying it is calling for us to something in between. Thou hast heard of it, and inquired diligently, and behold, it be true, and the thing certain that such abomination is wrought in Israel. Oops, I want to pause. I'll go. Uh, we'll find out what happens to these people. But I, I've inserted a few questions. One of the things that we encounter in our culture that we tend to shrug off as just child's play is astrology. I was, and I, I won't spend a lot of time on astrology here because I think anyone that's done a little bit of study realizes that it's, it's, uh, there have been intensive studies by a number of qualified groups finding it uh, you know, of, 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 of zero value in terms of predictivity and all that. Uh, there are a lot of studies there. I won't bother that. But I did encounter in a, an astronomical journal, now we're not talking astrology, astronomical journal, people who take the stars seriously, ten questions to ask astrologers. And I thought they're worthy of sharing with you just as a little interlude here. Ten questions for astrologers. I won't ask for a show of hands if any of you are into astrology. If you're into serious astrology, shame on you, it's occultic. The danger, in my mind, see, if you're really into it seriously, then you know what you're doing. You're in paganism and you're in danger of losing your soul. The danger, to me, is more serious are the ones that shrug it off as entertainment. What harm can it cause? I'll come back to that in a minute. Let's ten questions for astrologers. What's the likelihood that one-twelfth of the world's population having the same kind of day-to-day? Well, it's a question I just threw out. I think that's kind of an interesting question. What is, why is the moment of birth, not conception, crucial for astrology? You think if there's something magical about the moment that you're born, shouldn't it be the moment you're conceived? Why? why? Of course, you can't, you know. And is that why identical twins always have the same personality? Now, anybody who's known identical twins, you know why this is how facetious this is. You, if, if, they're usually as opposite as can be. Yet they're born at the same instant. That's kind of fun. Let the astrologers chew on that one. If the mother's womb can keep out astrological influences until birth, can we do the same with a slab of steak? <laughs> Just a question. If astrologers are as good as they claim, why aren't they rich? Stock market? How many foresaw the Black Monday, October 1987? Answer, none. A lot that claim to, but that's nonsense. Are, are all horoscopes done before the discovery of the three outermost planets incorrect? Uranus, 1781, Neptune, 1846, Pluto, 1930. I would assume that all horoscopes prior to the discovery are out of date or obsolete, right? And shouldn't we condemn astrology as a form of bigotry? Refusing to hire a Leo or Data Virgo or whatever? (laughs) I love it when somebody comes up to me and says, gee, what sign are you? You I say, I'm a Leo. I was born in May. Wow, how can you be a Leo born in May? Well, because I serve the Lion of the tribe of Judah, you know, and, and uh, so I'm a Leo. And, they, and, 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 uh, and, and it, what you can get into, it happens that the 12 signs of the Zodiac are, the 12, are linked to the 12 tribes of Israel and the Matzeroth, the Hebrew Zodiac, and it lays out God's redemptive plan from the virgin birth to the reigning king of, of uh, Lion of the tribe of Judah. So there's a whole other side to that, and I, I love it when they bring it up. You see, I can go into all that. But anyway, go on. And if you're curious about that, we have a thing called uh, Signs in the Heavens that goes through all that for you. Why do different schools of astrology disagree so strongly with each other? So you discover within the field of astrology there's no agreement on anything. Everybody has their different theories. There's no objective function. 
Some worry about the precession of the Earth's axis. Some don't. They argue about how many planets and celestial objects are to be included. And they have different allocation of personality traits and so forth. There's no convergence or consensus in this area, which is an indication there's no objective function. If the astrological influence is carried by any unknown force, why do the planets dominate? You know, an obstetrician who delivers the child turns out to have about six times the gravitational pull of Mars and about 2,000 million times its tidal force. <laughs> he has less mass, of course, but he's a lot closer is the point, you see? If astrological influence is carried by an unknown force, why is it independent of distance? See, the importance of Mars in a horoscope is identical, whether the planet is on the same side of the sun as the Earth or seven times further away on the other side. It's all just nonsense is the point. Even astronomically, that makes sense. If the astrological influences don't depend on distance, why is there no astrology of stars, galaxies, and quasars? And uh, following this little thing, I found that in the Astronomical Journal, there was a, a, a proposal for jetology. In order to cast a proper horoscope, you need to know the presence of every jet aircraft on the planet Earth at that instant to calculate it properly. <coughs> See? And, of course, it's facetious, but it goes on to explain all the rules. And, uh, anyway, it's just, just so it is. See, this, uh, question 10, doesn't the omission of Regal, the crab pulsar, or M31, uh, render a horoscope incomplete? Of course it does. <laughs> anyway, so much for that. So I don't know if we have any astrologers here, but I throw that out just to, for amusement. Let's move on. If you have such a person that's been somehow involved in false worship, then thou shalt bring forth that man or woman which have committed that wicked thing unto thy gates, even that man or that woman, and shalt stone them with stones till they die. I suspect that... Uh, that would have a tendency to discourage witchcraft or astrology. Now, I'm sure it was done. It was done covertly. Drove it underground. But uh, then we have this very important principle. At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. In other words, by two or three witnesses. That's all through the scripture. That's why things in the Bible are always confirmed in two or three places. It's the principle of two or three witnesses. And uh, it's interesting that the witnesses were to throw the first stones. Do you know why? So if it ever proved that they were wrong, they were, were, they, they were guilty of murder. And they were stoned. That also is a neat perjury deferral thing. Yeah. The hands of the witnesses shall be the first upon him to put him to death, and afterward the hands of the people. So shalt thou put the evil away from among you. You know, they really took care of these problems. They ran into somebody that was violating one of the rules, they stoned them, put an end to it. I give you another interesting observation. I can't find it confirmed in any of my records, but I think you can prove it by its absence of mention. Do you realize that in the ancient Israel there were no prisons? There are no prisons. If there was an avenger of blood, there are apparently a lot of rock piles. Um, I just got back from a tour of the Louisiana State Penitentiary, the Angola Prison. And uh, it's probably the most infamous penal institution in the world, started before the Civil War. It's presently become a model that's studied by people all over the world. Um, it covers 18,000 acres. It's bounded on three sides by the Mississippi. 18,000 acres is probably larger than Washington, D.C. It has uh, 5,000 inmates. Inmates, 85% of them will die there. Uh, many of them are there for being convicted of rape, which in some cases carries a 100-year sentence, no chance of parole. There have been cases, too, where the person can late after 20, serving 20 years can prove he was innocent. It's still ignored. There are, I had a chance to spend some time with 13 of the guys on death row, and um, there are some there that have had a pardon approved 
by the parole board, but the governor has declined to sign it for at least nine years so far. So I don't under, pretend to understand the dynamics behind the issues, but it's interesting that the administration of the institution, which is independent of those issues, is very, very competently managed by uh, Warden Burl Kane, who is a born-again believer. And he's restored dignity to the role of the inmates. Many of them recognize they're going to spend the rest of their life there, so they roll up their sleeves to make it as constructive as they can. 1,600 of the 5,000 profess Jesus Christ as their Savior. They have a 200-person Bible college within the confines. They have Moody. Uh, they actually uh, have their own radio, Christian radio station for the community. Um, it, it was a fascinating experience to see a competently run facility. It's become the model studied from, as, as a faith-based institution. Don't misunderstand me. It's a tough place. They enforce themselves very tightly. Uh, they have not only dogs but wolves and choppers and the, you know you can escape from a camp but you've got 18 you're within an 18,000 compound you know, <laughs> some guy did escape a few years ago they were out for, they got him and I think it took him about an hour and a half to get him because um, you just you know it's just it's all you know isolated places uh, within the compound so uh, it's a uh, it's a tough place it was interesting to go through the museum and see all the tools, uh, uh, weapons that uh, have been collected over the cent- you know, uh, century. Over, what, it was started before the Civil War. And each one of the little weapons that had been confiscated over the years almost cries out the agony of the past time because it was a very, very notorious abusive place in, in years past. But it was interesting to, to experience that. The whole so-called corrections area is a tough area. We do have a ministry uh, to uh, Christian transitions from, from, from prison to life headquartered in Illinois. And that was the, it was the, those people that arranged for the board to have a, a, spe, a special tour of a few days there in, in Angola. Very interesting experience. Very encouraging experience in many ways, although it may sound strange. But uh, it's interesting when people are in that kind of a culture, they're confronted with the reality. Because, you know, the, the world as we think of it is denied to them for the rest of their lives. It gives them a chance to focus on where they're really headed and is God really who he is and so forth. And so you find some very serious thinkers there. And they've got plenty of time to study. So we're trying to do what we can to help them. Anyway, uh, Moses goes on, chapter 17, verse 8, If there arise a matter too hard for thee in judgment... Be- between blood and blood, and between plea and plea, and between stroke and stroke, being matters of controversy within thy gates, then thou shalt arise and get thee up into a place which the Lord thy God shall choose. Now you come to a central authority, in other words. And thou shalt come unto the priests, the Levites, and the judge that, that shall be in those days, and inquire. And they shall show thee the sentence of judgment. And thou shalt do according to the sentence which they of that place, which the Lord shall choose, shall show thee. And thou shalt observe to do according to all that they inform thee, according to the sentence of the law which they shall teach thee, and according to the judgment which they shall tell thee, thou shalt do. And thou shalt not decline from the sentence which they shall show thee to the right hand or to the left. So you don't want to be caught in contempt of court in that region, as you can probably gather. And the man that, and the man that will do presumptuously and will not hearken unto the priest that's standeth to minister there before the Lord thy God and unto the judge. And even, even that man shall die, and thou shalt put away the evil from Israel. It's interesting to realize how widespread this application of capital punishment was in ancient Israel. They didn't mess around. They, regard, they assumed God was in charge. If they were obedient to his instruction, they would do fine. But they apparently had a pretty... Um, uh, enforced environment. And all the people shall hear and fear and do more, no more presumptuously. And I guess my c- concluding remark on Deuteronomy 17 is there are no prisons. <laughs> but now we find a passage from verse 14 on 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 the king. And this, when I first encountered it, startled me because most of us associate the king in Israel with Samuel. And David, and, or I should say Saul, and then David, and so forth. But if you've studied the book of Ruth, you know that God had intended for David to be king 
long generations before Jesse and David and all of that. Because the genealogy is critical in terms of, of the last part of the book of Ruth. In fact, let's move on here. Moses says in verse 14, When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me, like all the na- as all the nations are, are about me, thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose, one from among thy brethren. Thou shalt set king over thee, thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother." So God apparently, even in the days of Moses, anticipated the day when they would have a king. And indeed, Saul was in response to their clamoring to have a king like everybody else. We should not jump to the conclusion that God didn't already anticipate having David as a king. David just hadn't been born yet. In fact, as long as we're on the subject, let me touch on it a little further. You may recall in the book of Ruth... Ruth is a Moabitess, and she's committed to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Her, uh, uh, Naomi's both, both her sons, and her own husband, both sons had died while they were in exile in Moab. Ruth refuses, she encourages Ruth to make a new life for herself. Ruth refuses and insists upon accompanying, and, and your God will be my God, and where you die, I'm going to die. A very famous commitment passage by Ruth. So she, they come back to Bethlehem because by then, after 10 years, Bethlehem, they're, they're, things are better in Bethlehem. They originally left because of famine and so forth. They come back. But Naomi, of course, is destitute. Naomi and, and Ruth, her daughter-in-law, widow, is, uh, is her sidekick. And they both are thus on the welfare system, so to speak, which meant they could glean after reapers. The way they did it, and, and, they, and they, uh, they could follow the reapers through the land. Uh, if you own land, you could only reap once. What was left was for the, for the destitute. Well, she happens on a piece of property that's owned by Boaz, which turns out to be a kinsman of Naomi, which turns out to create the whole plot here, because he, be, he he's going to be in the role of the kinsman redeemer. And, of course, through the, the, the whole episodes there the, of this little four-chapter book, wonderful love story, uh, he takes Ruth to wife. He redeems the land for Naomi and takes... Ruth to wife. Now, this starts to raise, if, if you know your Bible, this raises all kinds of strange questions because Ruth was a Moabitess and that was expressly prohibited to marry a Moabitess in the, in, the, in the Torah. But what the law could not do, grace could do. And he, he, uh, he marries her. He takes her and marries her. Oh, boy, there's so much there. I'm trying not to make a whole Ruth study out of this. But there's a couple of key points. There's a very strange passage near the end of Ruth where they're celebrating that Ruth, this, that his, his marriage to Ruth. And he says, may your, and one person says, may your house be like Perez. And it sounds like a toast at a banquet or something, except if you know your Bible, you go back to Genesis 37, where you know, Perez was the illegitimate offspring of intercourse between Judah and his daughter-in-law thinking she was a prostitute. I mean, it's a weird, sordid story. And it says, may your house be like Perez. Well, if you know the story and someone said that to you at your wedding, you'd say, same to you, fella. You know. <laughs> but that's because what it is, it's, a, it's, not a, it's not a toast, it's a prophecy. And it turns out that the illegitimate son cannot inherit for ten generations in the Torah. And if you count ten generations from Perez, you come down to... to uh, Salmon, who married Rahab, the harlot at Jericho. Their son was Boaz. Boaz marries Ruth. And they, as, as, as it goes right on through, you get to, interestingly enough, David. David is the 10th generation of Paris. So it's a prophecy of David as a king. And, uh, in, but that's all in the book of death in the time of the judges. Ruth, book of Ruth, the time of the judges. Long before Saul and all of that. And so... Uh, uh, when you, in your home Bible said you can ask your, your group to say, gee, uh, didn't Samuel know that the royal line was going to be the tribe of Judah from Genesis 49? Of course he did. And how could Samuel anoint Saul, a Benjamite, if the king was supposed to come from the tribe of Judah, according to Genesis? And you can make, generate a discussion of that a little bit. Um, but let's move on. Um, so thou sh- if you're going to set up a king, make sure he's one of your brethren. In other words, from Israel. 
I want to remind you that Herod was not on David's throne. Herod was an Edomite, and he was appointed by Rome. So don't confuse Herod's kingship with the, the dynasty of David. Let's move on. Um, but God here sets up some requirements. In fact, he gives some other instructions. Speaking of king, kings shall not multiply horses. See, why are all these instructions for kings here? Because God knew there was going to eventually have to be a king. He had, there's going to come a time where they're going to need some centralization of administration. He knew it was coming. So he sets down some rules. He shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that they should multiply horses. So there's about three prohibitions that God is going to lay on here. One is that he shall not multiply horses. Why? Because that would give him an inherent inferiority in military battle. Because his, his infantry will always be against cavalry and so forth of his enemies. Why does God want to set up? So they stay dependent upon God. God has already proven to them that he can give them victory over cavalry. I'm sorry if I mispronounced it. I'm tired. Uh, uh, with, with the Egyptians. The Egyptians went after them with chariots and, and, uh, and the cavalry. And God delivered them. They had no horses. They had no uh, fighting capability. God fought for them. And he wants to keep them in that mode where they're dependent upon him. You know, there's a really fundamental principle here that we need to understand. That God wants us to rely on him. Not our balance sheets. Not our, not our other resources. That's why I don't think Christians win the lottery. I haven't done a study, but I wouldn't be a bit surprised if you statistically show that, we, that Christians do not win lotteries. Why? God's in charge of the lottery. Proverbs 16.33 says the lot is in the lap of the Lord. That lottery, he could have you win. So when you don't win, that's because God didn't want you to win. (gasps) Why? Because it would destroy you. He wants you dependent upon him. If he's going to bless you, he'll find ways to bless you that are scriptural, not a roulette wheel, so to speak. And uh, he will, he, he, if, you're, if you're being obedient to him, he has all kinds of ways that he'll bless you where that blessing will be ascribed to him and not random chance, which is the God we worship in our culture. You say, we're not pagan, we don't worship idols. Yes, we do. We've invented the most insulting idol of all. The ancients used to carve images out of stone or wood or whatever and bow down to them. We found something even more insulting. We ascribe the creation to nothing. There wasn't a creator necessary. It all just happened. You know, if I was a creator and you were ascribing the creation to a false god, I'd be upset. But if you take a position there's no creator necessary, that's even more insulting. It's even more insulting. Our scientific wisdom says first there was nothing and then it exploded. So anyway, they're not supposed to multiply horses, horses themselves, partly for a couple of reasons. One is to get horses. If they're trafficking horses, they're probably going to Egypt, which is, had a lot of horses there. They don't want them to go back to where they were in bondage. They should not multiply horses themselves, nor cause people to return to Egypt to the end that they should multiply horses. No, no, no. For as much the Lord hath said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. Told them not to. Don't go there. And a couple other constraints here. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself. That his heart, his heart turned not away. It was common in, in the ancient cultures to have multiple wives, especially for a king, to create foreign alliances. You'd marry the daughter of some king to, in order to avoid having war with that king and so forth. And he doesn't want those... To, there's two factors here. One is he doesn't want them depending on those marriage relationships the foreign, for foreign alliances. He wants them to stay separate. But there's another aspect to this. If, they take, uh, if he multiplies wives, uh, wives to himself, he'll turn his heart away. The, the wives typically will come from some other culture, and they'll have their ways of wanting to acknowledge that uh, heritage, and that will start to contaminate the purity of the worship in Israel. Then he has a third condition. No horses, not many wives, neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. Because that leads to coveting. The antidote for coveting is tithing. 
But it's interesting that all three of these injunctions, the horses, the wives, and the silver and gold, Solomon violated. You find the, the tragic chronicle of uh, the book of Kings with, with Solomon's ignoring these things. He broke, he broke all three of these in 1 Kings 10. In one chapter, well, chapter 11 too, he uh, uh, describes how Solomon blew it. Most famous king of all in some respects, he, he blew it. It fascinates me to see the contrast between David and Solomon. If you and I were writing their report cards, we think of David, man, he's an adulterer, he's a, he murdered Bathsheba's husband. Uh, you make a long list of where he, boy, did he blow it. And uh, look at Solomon. Now, there was a guy, he said he had brought up to commercial success. Power, his, his wealth was a legend. Queen of Sheba uh, didn't believe what she was hearing. He went to visit and said, gee, the half of it wasn't even told me, and so on. You know the story. But it's interesting to see the contrast in the Bible. David, who you and, I, you and I might not give high marks to, you can't find a page in the Bible where the God doesn't somehow elevate David. And one of the titles of Jesus Christ is the son of David. Son of Solomon too, but that's not the way he's labeled. He's labeled the son of David. You look at Solomon, every place he shows up in the New Testament, it's with the back of the hand. He's always set up as a standard that is beaten. The lilies of the valleys are, you know, arrayed grander than he and so forth. He's always used it as a reference, but it's always a negative reference, interestingly enough. Anyway, and of course Solomon was the king through whom idolatry entered the land. Book of Revelation, we have a tribe of Dan singled out for a mission because he was the tribe through which the, the, uh, Jeroboam introduced uh, idolatry into the land. It's interesting that Solomon... Also, his, his, his salary, the only place 666 shows up in the Old Testament is Solomon's salary. So there's some linkage there you can play around with. Let's move on. Deuteronomy 17, verse 18. It shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom that he shall write upon him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priests, the Levites. They had no Xerox machines in those days. And if you're going to sit on the throne, one of the tasks that you had to do was to write out a copy of the Torah. For yourself, your own copy. There are obviously official copies done by the scribes and the priests. That was their job. But no, the king himself, as part of his uh, you know, investiture, if you will, had to write out a copy of the Torah for himself. Uh, uh, in a book, uh, out of that which is before the priests and the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, and to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them. Wouldn't it be nice if our leadership had some kind of requirement like that? Wouldn't, it, wouldn't, our, wouldn't this nation be different? Wouldn't it be different? That his heart be not lifted up above his brethren, that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, to the end, that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. Man, that's pretty neat. Well, that's chapter 17. They were making pretty good progress here. Deuteronomy 18. Three topics. The priests and the Levites, more about them. And then we're going to talk about the occult. More, we're going to hit that again a little more directly. And then the prophets. How do you tell a good one from a bad one? And what do you do with a bad one? Deuteronomy 18, verse 1, The priests and the Levites and all the tribe of Levi shall have no part nor inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the offerings of the Lord made by fire and his inheritance. Remember, in the twelve tribes... There were 12 tribes that received land, and there's one that didn't. Now you say, wait a minute, I thought there's only 12 tribes. No, there's 13. The tribe of Joseph was in two parts, Ephraim and Manasseh. So you've actually got a, you've got a baker's dozen is what you've got. And so when you want to leave out one of the tribes, you can do it, still end up with 12. They're listed 20 times in the Bible, each time in a different order, each time with a different tribe omitted. If it's military, the Levites were left out because they were, didn't go to war. Um... Uh, if it's the inheritance in the kingdom, uh, uh, the Levites didn't inherit. They were left out for that reason. The book of Revelation, the tribe of Dan is left out, and so forth. And there's another tribe that's there but not mentioned. I'll let you sort that out by looking at Revelation 7. And I'll, get question, I'll answer your questions next time. Um, 
how can it be there and not mentioned? Tribe Dan doesn't show up, but there's another tribe that you won't find there either. But it's there, and you have to look for it. Anyway, uh, but anyway, the, the Levites uh, shall have no inheritance. What they inherit, they had no. All the other tribes had land given to them. The Levites did not, because the Lord was their inheritance and their duties to Him. They did live in forty-eight cities, Levitical cities, and six of those forty-eight cities were designated cities of refuge, and we'll be talking about that before it's all over. But uh, anyway, they had no inheritance in traditional sense. Therefore, shall they have no inheritance among their brethren? The Lord is their inheritance, as he hath said to them. He's just repeating stuff that came out of Leviticus earlier. And this shall be the priests do. Now, by the way, the difference between a Levite and a priest is the priest was not only a Levite, he was a descendant of Aaron. So if you take all the tribe of Levi, there's a subset of them that are direct descendants of Aaron that are priests. That's the difference between a priest and a Levite. They're both of the tribe of Levi, but the priests are descendants of Aaron. This shall be the priest's due from the people, from them that offer a sacrifice, whether it be an ox or a sheep, and they shall give unto the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the maw, the first fruit also of the corn and the wine and thine oil, and the first of the fleece of thy sheep shalt thou give him. The Lord thy God hath chosen him out of all thy tribes to stand, to minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons forever. And if a Levite come from any of thy gates out of, all of, out of all Israel where he sojourned and come with all the desire of his mind unto the place which the Lord shall choose, then he shall minister in the name of the Lord his God and, shall, and all his brethren, the Levites do, which stand uh, there before the Lord. They shall have the portions to eat beside that which cometh from the sale of his patrimony. When thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not learn to do after the abominations of those nations." Now we can get, there's a whole bunch of detail that we went through when we went through the book of Leviticus as to how they uh, deal with the Levites and the priests. Moses is just summarizing here, but he's heading uh, to a, another subject. And that is the occult. Why is the occult dangerous? The occult is an offense to God for lots of reasons. Let's just look at a few of these. See, God's point of view, the whole Torah teaches us that the future is determined, in a sense, by one's moral behavior, not magical manipulation. Your destiny, your prosperity, your good, your, your good health, whatever, will derive from your moral behavior, not from magical incantations or whatever. That was what God was trying to teach them. Using magic to manipulate one's circumstances was, in essence, a futile attempt to flee from the Lord's ethical laws, which promoted life and blessing. All through the Torah, and highlighted by Moses in, the Deuteron is in Deuteronomy, is this whole idea that you will prosper if you're obedient to the Lord's rules. Trying to use magic to manipulate, manipulate your circumstances is an attempt to flee from God's jurisdiction. That's the way he looks at it. The same thing is through divination. Next one. The use of magic and divination was a denial of the sovereignty of the Lord. Is God in charge of the future or not? Is God in charge of your future? Attempts to use divination. And, and I, I, by the way, um, don't confuse divination with doing some intelligent business forecasting. If you, if you have some business management, you realize that, uh, that uh, planning... Is, has to do with the futurity of today's decisions. Doing a cash flow for, forecast for a business is just good stewardship. That's not divination, laying down a plan and trying to do some forecasting for inventory purposes, whatever. That's just good stewardship. So don't confuse forecasting with divination. As a guy that spent a good part of my executive career um, in, in, uh, in statistical forecasting techniques, I can tell you that the most powerful way to use a computer is looking forward, not back. And, uh, but that's not divination. It's not the same thing. Don't, don't confuse the two. But, uh, but to use, use magic and divination is a denial of the sovereignty of the Lord. Um, and, of course, relying on these practices indicated a corresponding failure to trust the Lord with one's own life. That's really... That's, that's, now, but, but yet, by the way, so I don't, I don't want you to misunderstand me. If the occult was nothing more than a manifestation of ignorance, then why would it be subject to death? 
Do you stone somebody because he doesn't know his multiplication tables? I don't think so. Yet the occult was punishable by death. So there's far more here than simply ethical behavior at stake. Let's go on and look at verse 10. There shall not be found among you anyone that maketh his son or his daughter to pass through the fire, or that useth divination, or an observer of times. That's a horoscope type thing. Or an enchanter, or a witch, or a charmer, or a consulter with a familiar spirit, or a wizard, or a necromancer. Necromancer is one that communicates with the dead. Boy, there shall not be found among you anyone that maketh the son or daughter pass. That's pretty, infant, infant offerings are, you know, that's pretty grim. But do you realize that in our culture, we found a way to do that more offensively than the ancients ever dreamed of doing? They would, they would offer their children in the arms of a red-hot idol. They'd offer their children sacrifice that way. you say, gee, that's awful. We do it worse. We offer our children in the holy of holies of the womb of the mother. We murder babies that are socially inconvenient. More casually, more offensively, than the ancient cultures ever dreamed of doing. Do you realize in the ancient cultures, like Persia is one example... To have an abortion was a capital crime. It really startled me to discover the ancient pagan cultures to have an abortion that's separate from offering a child in its kind of religious ceremony. Having an abortion was considered a capital crime. Why? Because the nations knew that their strength depended on their population growth. And, and to, to abort children was considered a crime against the state. Different Mentality, obviously, than we have today. Interesting. Anyway, and using divination, observer time, horoscopes is an example of that. Uh, an enchanter or a witch. It's fascinating how we've got adopted this, and, and, and the witches are proud of this. That uh, uh, remember, there was a many years ago, there was a witch witches convention in Los Angeles. In those days, we had been publishing some of Walter Martin's stuff. All Hal Lindsey's Satan is Alive and Well on Planet Earth. And we had a silk screen, black albums with red letters on And we had uh, Walter Martinson, Kingdom of the Occult. And uh, one of our guys decided to take a booth down there, the witchcraft. Because he figured they'd all think this stuff is witchcraft stuff, you know, and uh, spooky stuff. And uh, strange stories came out of that one. But, but it was it. He, he was quite intrigued with, the, with some of the speakers because uh, they point out that they don't recruit in groups. Ours is a one-on-one proselytization. Ooh, boy, I wish we could learn that, huh? And on it goes. Anyway, um, or a charmer or a consulter with a, fami- a charmer or a consulter with a familiar spirit. This, of course, immediately uh, conjures up the uh, Saul and the witch of Endor, which is a very widely misunderstood passage because we here we have a witch. It was Saul had gone ahead and made them all illegal, but then Samuel had died. Mm-hmm. God wasn't here. Saul knew his prayer. He, he was not. He, he needed Samuel's advice, and he was lonely, and so he commissions his guys to find a witch that somehow escaped uh, jurisdiction here, down in Endor. This gal, not knowing it was Saul at first, agrees to conduct a seance. Then she gets shook because Samuel really shows up, and uh, uh, and a lot of people get confused. You know, how is God endorsing witchcraft? Hardly. Samuel, you know, Samuel uh, oh, uh, it's interesting that they see Samuel, but Saul does not. Saul hears him. Because there was a passage that Samuel said, when you're still alive, you shall see me no more. So even, even then, if you look at the passage carefully, it's very interesting how precise it is. But, uh, of course, the, 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 the medium is really shook up because uh, uh, she realizes this isn't, you know, she's not, this is not a part of her program here. And... Uh, I remember Joanna Michelson pointed out to me, she said uh, she's written a lot of good books about, uh, important books about uh, uh, the occult and so forth. She says she's never met a happy medium. (laughs) 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 But, uh, of course, Samuel shows up and tells Saul that uh, I've got some uh, some news for you. Tomorrow you're going to be with me, meaning Saul, you're going to die tomorrow. And he and his sons, of course, get Gilbo and die the next day. But it's a very, very interesting passage to study. It's also a passage that lends itself terrifically to a high school play or something. 
because it's very, very colorful, lends itself to some very simple special effects if you want to bother with that. But it also is a terrific counterpoint to Halloween. If you've got a project around Halloween, do Saul and the Witch of Dendor as a play. We've, we conducted a, 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 a competition many years ago uh, for a prize for the best play based on, history, uh, on about three criteria, the biblical accuracy, entertainment value, and suitability for high school production. And we had Frank Peretti chair a group of judges, and we picked the, uh, we had a lot of them, but we picked the four best that were very different from one another, and we published it. If anybody's interested in doing something like the, 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 the scripts are available for your own uh, amusement, uh, calling our office. But, but it's, a, it's an interesting way to create a biblically-based uh, discussion, if you will, of, of the occult, because um, there's many lessons there. In any case... Uh, or a charmer consulter with familiar spirits, which is, or, or wizard, or a necromancer. And uh, there are uh, uh, some major religions not far from us uh, who deal heavily with uh, necromancy as part of their underground capability. I won't get into that here. It's not the proper place, but let's move on. Verse 12. For all that do these things, get this, for all that do these things are an abomination unto the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee. Thou shalt be perfect, or complete, with the Lord thy God. For these nations which thou shalt possess, hearken unto the observers of times and unto the diviners. But as for thee, the Lord thy God hath not suffered thee to do so. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, and of thy brethren, like unto me, and unto him... Shalt thou hearken? And uh, so God, God has his voices, and that's what he expects us to listen to. And him shall ye, unto him shall ye hearken, unto all that thou desirest of the Lord thy God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord thy God, neither let me see this great fire any more, that I die not. The Lord said unto me, They have well spoken that which they have spoken. That's what they asked for, and that's the way it is. It says, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. Wow. It's interesting when you get to the New Testament that John the Baptist is active there in the Jordan at a place called Bethabara, house of passage. It's the very, John was preaching at the very place that Joshua took the children of Israel across in. But it's interesting, John the Baptist, here's this guy, what is it, 20 miles from Jerusalem to, Jer- to Jericho or that area? Way out there. There were so many, and they had no transportation, no Hertz cars, whatever. So many people came out to hear John the Baptist from Jerusalem that the temple sent an inquiry team to find out what's going on out there. It's interesting, when they get there, the team that they sent, the the investigators, were expecting that he was one of three people. In John chapter 1, verse, sorry about verse 19. This is the record of John when, when the Jews, meaning the leadership of the Jews, sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? So they sent a team of, of, of officials, priests and Levites from Jerusalem, to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and denied not. He said, But confessed, I am not the Christ. So one of the three possibilities that maybe he thinks he's the Messiah. And they ask him, What then? Art thou Elias, Elijah? Remember, the Old Testament closes in Matthew and Malachi that Elijah would come. Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Some people think John the Baptist is Elijah. No, John the Baptist said he wasn't. Right here in verse 20, 21. Art thou that prophet? He answered, no. Many people going through John 1 miss the fact that they're really looking for three people. Is he Messiah? No. Is he Elijah? No. They're expecting both of them. There's a third guy that there's an atmosphere of expectation. He's called that prophet. In the passage of John 19, it comes up several times. Are you that prophet? What are they talking about? They're talking about Deuteronomy 18, the prophet of Moses. 
Not Moses, but a prophet of Moses. Because Moses, Moses speaks, it's a synecdoche, really, speaking specifically and using the specific for the general. That's what a synecdoche is. The general for the specific or the specific for the general. And so he speaks of that prophet, and that's what they were expecting. But Moses says in Deuteronomy 18.20, But the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name, God speaking, which I, sh- which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall do what? Shall die. Man, if we had the ability to enforce this, you could clear the television airwaves. Or at least a lot of them. I'm not talking about all of them. Don't misunderstand me. I mean, if the, the false teachers that are around, if they were subject to being stoned, I mean, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? Even that prophet shall die. And if thou say in thine heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord hath not spoken? Goes, how do we know? Well, he's going to tell you. When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, and if the thing follow not nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken. But the prophet has spoken it presumptuously. Thou shalt not be afraid of him. Sounds kind of double talk. Wait a minute. If he says something's going to happen and doesn't follow, then that's something the Lord didn't say. Right. That's why prophecies usually have two aspects to them. Something near and something far. Many, many, many prophecies in the Bible prophesy something immediate and something further downstream. And that's the ability to apply this. If what he said comes path, then you know the rest of it's true. Follow me? That's, what, that's, that's the idea that's embodied here. And there we are. Strange times. Strange times. We live in a day of occult. I have to tell you, you know, I can remember when I was a teenager, that's 100 years ago, um, I was very much into the Bible thing and all that, and I was very well taught by some wonderful, wonderful men of God about the classical biblical prophetic scenario. And uh, Israel had, had just been reestablished in 48, and so all these arguments about taking the Bible literally or not should have gone away. There it is, you know. And I was smart enough to recognize that. In 49, the RSV came out, and I was perceptive enough to have anything to do with that translation. I stayed with the King James in those days. But um, as I looked at all these prophetic things, I could go through the whole list of things that we take for granted today, prophecy-wise, and I can remember being taught about all those. But there was one thing that the Bible always talked about that I just, I never didn't reject, but I just couldn't see. And that's the idea that in the end times there's going to be a rise of witchcraft and sorcery. And I remember as a math science major, a kid that was graduating from high school, heading for a PhD in double E in Stanford, that was the path I was on before the Naval Academy appointment. My whole mindset was in those directions. I couldn't visualize our modern scientific culture taking seriously witchcraft and sorcery. Get serious. You've got to be kidding. Well, I went uh, in my, I graduated from the academy, did my defense career for a while, then I ended up being the senior management at Ford Motor Company, and I left there and for, started my first company. But I can remember, for some reason, I was in Chicago. I can't remember whether it was because of Ford or the company I started. I don't remember that part of it. But it happened in those days that the Broadway play Hair was going on. And uh, like every you know, worldly sensitive executive, I uh, went to see the Broadway play. And it had some great music, but some pretty offensive lyrics. But the point is... For some reason, I had grown up through my executive career sensitive to the fact that it was a counterculture thing with, you know, Berkeley, all that stuff. But I never connected that with the drug scene until I saw that play, which, of course, plays in all that. And I remember it blew me away to realize it was about that time that I also became sensitive to the fact that the word sorcery in the Bible is a Greek term pharmakia. has to do with the abuse of drugs. But the linkage of witchcraft with the drug scene was made for me, the wake-up call was that, uh, for me, was at that time. And I remember being startled to discover on the uh, coffee tables in waiting rooms of some top executives of the Fortune 500 companies, occulting magazines and things. It was an in thing. Uh, there were uh, rational well-educated guys dabbling not in serious occult stuff. It just blew me away. 
And of course, now I laugh at myself because it's pretty obvious. But we live in a culture, what reason it hits me so hard, that was the one thing of all the other stuff, the Magog invasion, all these things that we talk about prophetically, I could see on the horizon. I couldn't see that. And the one thing I couldn't see is coming in space. The fact that we live in a culture in which, when we first moved up here to Idaho, started doing home Bible studies, they had pentagrams burning on the lawns. And, and, and we have groups organized praying against us in these groups. Do you realize that prayer is one of their powerful tools? We take it so for granted, we almost shrug it off as, you know, so available. We don't use it. And yet they take it very seriously. No, we're dealing with dark stuff. We're dealing with really, really dark stuff. Um, and one of the manifestations of this is the UFOs. You know, you, 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 there's more of that stuff going on than you have any idea, seen by tens of thousands of people. But most spooky part of that is the abduction stuff, these abduction issues, spooky stuff, and uh, serious stuff. I can, I can vividly remember um, uh, when we did our book, our, our book now on the fifth printing on alien encounters, but when it first came out, we were doing radio you know, interviews and stuff on it. And uh, during those days, I got a telephone call here at the ministry from an executive producer at Universal City. He introduced himself on the phone. He says, Chuck, I've heard your stuff. I happen, you know, I've heard you on the radio. You're right on target. I happen to know a lot about this because I participated in several major projects in this area. But I have to take exception with something I was upset with you that I had to track you down because on the radio you said that Christian can't be abducted. And I was sort of startled. You know, that, that would be an issue to an executive producer in Hollywood. And he said, uh, you need to check out the Andreessen Affair. Well, I listened politely and so forth. But uh, I subsequently went and examined the... Uh, that's one of the very famous abduction issues. There's a handful of these that are well-known to anyone that's done some research in the area. But Benny Andreessen was a spirit-filled believer for 20 years in a spirit-filled fellowship and had an experience, very strange, bizarre experience, that she recounts in her affidavit. But the subtlety that is missed is they did abduct her, they invited her, and she accepted the invitation. And I argue that that's not an abduction. And, and uh, so... So I still stand my ground with, uh, with the, the gentleman who was uh, kind enough to you know, get involved here. But um, they're, they're, they, these things are, are strange. And you don't want to chase them. You want to flee them. But they are dangerous. You're not dealing with manifestations of ignorance. There are all kinds of stupid superstitions and things. The Bible's silent on. It doesn't deal with. They're, 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 they're just symptoms of being uninformed. You follow me? Not the occult. It's dangerous. I remember when The Exorcist came out as a movie. I was very close on Walter Martin's board in those days, and Walter set out. He was really upset with William Blatty and that novel, which they made into the movie. He didn't like it because Satan wins, you know, at the end. In fact, that was his main complaint. But as he investigated Blatty, he was startled to discover the man was right on target. He really had done his homework. He, he, he actually complied. He, he built his novel around three specific case studies, the key one was a boy, not a gal, but the point is uh, he had done his homework. And uh, uh, Walter was very su surprised that that, that whole thing. The reason I get into this is the, the, le the legitimate, accurate part of this, the way that whole nightmare started for that young girl in the story, young boy in real life, but in any case, was horsing around with a Ouija board at a party. A Ouija board. You know, we laugh at that thing as a silliness and stuff, but they do it at parties. It is dangerous. If it was contrived or playing games and stuff, it would be different. No, it is what a technician would call an entry. That's what's so dangerous about Dun Dungeons and Dragons and some of these, these uh, 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 fringe kinds of entertainments is that they can be exploited by the dark side. How? Because you let down the gate of your volition. You don't ever want to be hypnotized. You don't ever want to play with these... Uh, things because it, it provides an unguarded entry. And uh, you say, well, I'm a Christian. Good Christians can't be demon-possessed. They can sure be hassled, and you may have an occultic background you don't know about if you haven't specifically renounced it. It's interesting. One of the lessons that comes out of all of this, and I spent a lot of time with both Walter and Hal on this subject, uh, Walter Martin and Hal Lindsay, a couple of my mentors, one of the things that we fail to do in our current culture, Christian culture is we, when we have someone accept Jesus Christ, we generally don't have them explicitly, specifically renounce Satan, all his works, and all his ways. You know, the old the Catholics do, some of the early uh, uh, reformers 
had formats that when you accepted Christ, you went through a procedure in which, among other things, you acknowledged your sin. We tend to slip over that often in these big rallies. Acknowledged your sin. And they expressly renounced Satan in any form in their lives and in their genealogy and in their land holdings. And uh, apparently that was imp- that's important. Why demons are territorial, I have no idea, but there's a lot of evidence that they do. And I think you, you need to recognize we're pl- we're, it's a spiritual warfare. And you need, to, you need to repair your illiteracy in this area. You need to be on your guard, and you don't play around with these things. But I promise to get out early. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we do praise you, and we thank you that you have given us freedom in Christ. We thank you, Father, you've given us liberty from all bondage in him. But we do pray, Father, you make us increasingly sensitive to the bondage that you've freed us from. We pray, Father, that you'd give us wisdom and discernment. And above all, Father, we thank you for the calling you've given us to obedience to your word and obedience in faith. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you, above all, for our Redeemer who has freed us from these things. And, Father, we also would pray that through your Holy Spirit you would increase in each of us a hunger and an appetite for the word that you have spoken. Draw us into it and give us instruction, Father, as only you can. Help us, Father, to discover what you would have of each of us in the days that remain, that we each might be more fruitful stewards of the opportunities that you provided. As we commit ourselves without any reservation into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.